Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, the premier free writing magazine on the Internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video off, uh, interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genres. In fact, right now, our new issue is up, our October issue, and it's got an interview with the one and only Nancy Pearl, Seattle's own Nancy Pearl, America's rock star librarian. Yes, she is. Uh, she of book lust, but she's written her first novel. Uh, and I will tell you the story of how this book came to be is a one of a kind. And she tells it during the interview. I highly recommend you check it out. It is like a kind of masterclass in the strange nature of the creative process. It's a great story, and it's on Author Magazine right now, authormagazine.org. So check it out. And we are funded, of course, by the Great Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. To learn more about the PNWA and their Writers' Conference, their yearly Writers' Conference, uh, please go to pnwa.org. I will be, uh, for those of you who live in the Northwest, in the Puget Sound area, I will be up at Village Books this Saturday from 2 to 4, teaching Fearless Writing, uh, Fearless Writing Workshop. Uh, you can sign up, at, sign up at that through, I think, Village Books, or go to my website, and there's a link to it there, williamcanower.com go on all my appearances, and there's a list of that. Of course, I'll also be down in California the following week in Los Angeles for the uh, Writer's Digest Writer's Conference, their novel writing conference. I'll be teaching about the three narrative arcs as well as fearless writing once again. So if you're going to be at that conference and it's a doozy, well, I hope I see you there. I hope I see you in the class. All right. Well, ooh, you're lucky you tuned in today. We've got a good one for you. Uh, I am happy to report we've got Blaine Harden with us today. Blaine uh, worked for 28 years for the Washington Post as a correspondent in Africa, Eastern Europe, and Asia, as well as in New York and Seattle. And for four years, he was a local and national correspondent for the New York Times and a writer for the Times Magazine. He is a reporter and consultant for PBS Frontline, and he has written for The Economist. Time, Foreign Policy, National Geographic, and The Guardian. And, oh, he's also the author of several books, many books, really, including Escape from Camp 14, The Great Leader and Fighter Pilot, and most recently and most interestingly, King of Spies. Let us talk to Blaine. Blaine, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. Well, Blaine, I want to get to King of Spies, and uh, but before we do, what I would like to do is talk about your sort of writing journey, because writing is, you know, a lot, most writers know they want to write, but the first kind of question we have to answer is, what do we want to write? Did you know it was journalism for you from the start, or did you just know, I want to write, and i got to go find out what? I guess it was journalism from the start. I was at Gonzaga University in Spokane, which is now famous because of basketball, not because of yeah. writing. But yeah. when I was there, I, I uh, started working for the, the school newspaper, and it just worked. It just came to me. I, I had a facility for it. And um, when I was there, I also had some teachers who took me under their wing and who taught me. Uh, writing uh, in the summers between terms. And I really had intense uh, training in, you know, writing good, sharp, clear sentences 
from yeah. good teachers uh, there. And then I went to graduate school at, at Syracuse uh, in journalism. And I also had a number of really good teachers there. Um, and so I always did journalism. I, I, I've, I've never written fiction. And, um, but, I've, but I've always sort of approached it, trying to use fictional techniques, uh, character, plot, and a strong sense of place. And yeah. use that in the, the, the you know, develop my skills. I've written five books now, and each one I think I improve my skills. You improved your storytelling skills, not just your sort of sentence-to-sentence skills, but your ability to structure well, a both, I think. compelling narrative. I think both. I think both. It's, yeah. yeah. Storytelling skills, uh, um, you know, writing books is a lot different than writing a newspaper article or a magazine article because you have to sustain uh, tension. You have to develop characters uh, much yeah. more. And the plot has to has to kick in uh, relatively early and then be sustained. And uh, not all of those things are possible in, in every nonfiction book because of the nature of the material. Um, right. But what I'm looking for is, is stories that allow you to have a really strong sense of character, uh, which you know, gives you the unity of, of the narrative so, so easily. Uh, and yeah. then you can deliver a vast amount of information uh, around that character. You know, journalism is interesting, it seems to me, because, you, first of all, you, there, there seem like there's two separate interests a, a good journalist needs to have. One is the interest in writing, in communicating through the written word. And the other one has to be an interest in the world. In other words, what's going on and, and translating what's going on for other people, because that's a separate sort of interest. Would, would you say that's fair? Um, well, I, 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 it's true. But I think the thing that's so great about journalism is that it throws you out into the world. If you're a shy yeah. person, and I, I, I consider myself to be kind of a shy person, but when I'm doing my work trying to get the story, I'm not shy at all. And it, huh. it's a great way to see and learn. And, and you know, 90% of life is showing up. And when you have to write a story, you show up everywhere. Uh, and get information and learn. And life is just really rich. I was a correspondent for the Post, uh, you know, for for much of my adult life. And I must say, I, I could never have imagined having such an interesting life because I had to get out and do, you know, ask the questions and see what was going on. Um, and journalism made that possible. I love what you said that 90% of life is showing up. I, I absolutely think that's true. I've heard it a bunch of times. One of the it, Woody Allen, I think. I heard it most yeah. recently uh, said. Um, where, when did do you remember when you really learned that? When you understood that that because there's a you know there is a kind of narrative that it, that some got it, some don't. Some are smart, some are dumb, some are talented, and so on. And I really ag- agree with you that it has much more to do with just showing up. Uh, do you remember when you learned that? Um. You know, I think I learn it all the time. You keep learning it in your life. You think you know something. Uh, you think you yeah. understand how, uh, uh, you know, uh, a character, uh, uh, who a person is. But if you go out and watch them in action, you learn more and more and more. Um, and 
I, I've had I've had books where I couldn't go to the place where I was writing, uh, particularly North Korea, um, when I was writing a story about somebody in a prison uh, in, in a concentration camp, and yeah. it really, really is cobbling and crippling if you can't go there. If you can, yeah. it's always worth it. Yeah, nothing replaces experience. <laughs> nothing can. I mean, reading about things are great, but there's nothing replaces being there and seeing it and experiencing it yourself. Right, right. To really one of the, uh, I have a friend, David Marinus, who's a, a former Washington Post uh, writer and editor, and now he, he writes he writes lots of books. I think he's written more than ten or eleven or twelve or thirteen. But he, uh-huh. he when he, he does biographies, he does sports books, he does all kinds of books. And what he does is he always goes wherever a scene is set in any of his books, and mm-hmm. he, he hangs out there. He, he, he absorbs what it looks and smells uh, and feels like. Um, yeah. he, and, then, and then he writes, his character may have been at that place 20 or 30 years previously, but being right. there gives him a much more, you know, more verisimilitude. And, it, yeah. and it, it's, it's sort of painlessly, you can integrate that into what you know from your, from your you know, research documents and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, obviously, you spent years, you, you, I assume you, you dove in as a young man into professional journalism. And like you said, you spent almost 30 years for the Washington Post, and they sent you all over the place. But at some point, you also decided you were interested in writing books. Not every journalist decides to write books. A lot of them do, but not all of them. What, was, what moved you to make that uh, choice? Well, I, I just I, I just felt that there were things that I could say in books um, and muscles I could exercise in books that you can't do, particularly in a daily newspaper, but even in magazine articles. Um, and so, so that's why I wanted to write books. Um, it, it's not that I wanted to leave being a journalist. Uh, I didn't because journalism is great because they pay you to go and you don't have to pay to go. And so you can see a lot more places, Um, particularly when the newspapers are healthy and rich like they were for many years before uh, uh, the Internet stole all the classified ads. But um, so I I did books because I wanted to use more of, of the skills that I thought I had. That this is somewhat of a tangent, but um, do you think? And I, I don't want to go too far down this road, but I. But since you bring it up, do you think there's any kind of a renaissance happening with the newspapers now? It seems like they seem so much more relevant. Maybe it's just because I am so much more finely attuned to what's happening. But it seems like a little bit of a renaissance is happening with at least in America. Well, there's a, there's a, there's the, uh, a, a been a, an incredible uh, revival of the Washington Post, <laughs> um, yeah. in part yes. because the, one of the richest man richest men in the uh, in the history of the world now owns the Washington Post, Jeff Bezos that does help. of Amazon, yeah. and so yeah, they have they have resources and they also have technology, uh, and they, then they have they have a great. Uh, uh, brilliant, uh, courageous editor Marty Baron, and so it's all sort of integrated, you know. And they they have this amazing story of of of, of a president um, who is is so unlike any other president in the country's history. Um, yeah. And so it makes it compelling 
you know, almost minute by minute, it's compelling. Uh, the Washington yeah. Post has thrived with it. So has the New York Times. So have a lot yeah. of other publications. But once you get, uh, once you leave that that high level of national uh, journalism, um, newspapers across the country are struggling because of yeah. changing readership habits and and advertising habits. And the big metropolitan dailies. Uh, are really struggling, um, and some of them remain quite good. Um, but you know, it, it's a, just a question of how long before they die, and it, that's right. terrible for understanding your communities. Yeah, it's going to have to somehow. That's all going to have to. It's going to have to take a new form. I don't know what that's going to be, but I think what they've done can't go away because what we're looking for from them hasn't. We still are looking for what they used to offer. You know what they've always offered. It's true. Stop and, looking. You know yeah. we know we want to know yeah. what's going on. We want we want to know the sports score. We want to know, you know, what's going on in real estate. So somehow it's going to have to go somewhere. All right. Well, we don't want. Let's not talk about a dying industry. Let's talk about your thriving yeah. living books, uh, Blaine. So you, I, I want to get to um, King of Spies. It's a fascinating book, and 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 very timely. And I cannot imagine when you started this book. And I'd like you, if you'd be willing, to give a brief summation for. Our, listeners, because I do recommend this book if you're interested in what's going on in the world today. You couldn't have known when you started it how timely it would be, could you? Because it had to have been years ago, or at least at least a year ago, if not more. Right. I, I've been working on it really for about four years, and uh, I didn't okay. anticipate that Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un would have a face-off with tweets and insults <laughs> right. about the time right. the, the book was published. Uh, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that in terms of interest in the book, but it's still fairly frightening uh, because uh, it, yes, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, because of the possibility of war in the Korean Peninsula. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. in in summary, this is a this is a book about the origins of a divided Korea and the origins of the mess that doesn't that never goes away between North and South Korea, and at yeah. the heart of of the division uh, of 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 Korea into two separate countries. There was a uh, an American spy who, largely unknown to history until this book is published, uh, who was there just after the Americans drew the line dividing North and South Korea in 1945 and stayed for 11 years. Uh, yeah. And his life and experience and dark, dark adventures um, sort of explain the birth of a divided Korea and some of the enduring anger of North Korea towards the United States. Yeah. Donald Nichols is the name of the spy. He arrived when he was 23, um, and he was a, just a master sergeant. But what he did is he befriended the leadership in South Korea. He became a son to uh, America's puppet president, Sigmund Rhee, and Sigmund Rhee fed him intelligence of uh, before any other American intelligence operatives, uh, and and this gave Nichols unusual power, and also access to everybody else in South Korea. He also had a network of spies in North Korea. When the Korean War started in 1950, Nichols had been there for four years. He knew the language. He knew all the players, and he he was catapulted into. A, sort of a rarefied position of power. Um, and he was promoted from sergeant to major in about three months, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, right. And he, 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 he discovered weaknesses in Soviet tanks, Soviet planes, and he helped break 
North Korean battle codes. In, in a sense, he helped the Americans not lose the Korean War in a way that right. was significant, that won him a bunch of medals, but was completely secret. And it, it never re- was leaked for, for, for half a century after his service. But then there was this other side of Nichols, is that Nichols was also completely without any moral uh, compass. Uh, he yeah. lived in a world of mass killings, severed heads, and torture, and benefited yeah. from his contacts with those people who were killing uh, South Koreans that did not please the South Korean leadership of Sigmund Rhee. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. You, and you mentioned in the intro how important it is when you choose your books to have a character that can drive the story. And Nichols is a – what a character you found yourself there. And Did you know when you chose the story – how, I mean, because he is a very unusual character, dark person in many ways, a strange guy, and yet did you know what you were getting into when you started researching him, other than that he I was didn't. somehow central to all this political stuff? I didn't know, and this is, this is a book driven by research and reporting and curiosity. I found out about Donald Nichols' existence from a North Korean fighter pilot. My book before uh, King of Spies was The Great Leader and the Fighter Pilot. And the fighter Mm -hmm. pilot was a a key figure in in Cold War history. His name was Nokom Suk, and he escaped from North Korea in September of 1953 in a MiG-15, the the hottest Soviet (laughs) fighter jet in existence. And he flew it to South Korea to give the plane to the Americans and to come to America himself uh, for a new life. Right. When he landed his plane at a U.S. Air Force base near Seoul, he jumped out and said, take me to your leader. The leader they took him to was Donald Nichols, uh, wow. this spy. And so uh, when, when Nokom Sok told me this story, he said he was so impressed by this American. The American was six foot two, weighed 260 pounds. He drank a case of Coca-Cola a day and usually ate two or three boxes of uh, Butterfingers or Hershey chocolate bars. Um, but he also knew the inner workings of the North Korean Air Force as well as the North Korean government of Kim Il-sung, the great leader, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un. So I, I was when I talked to the fighter pilot, I said, well, you know, where did Donald Nichols come from? How, how did he get all this information? And you know, the, the fighter pilot didn't know, but he said he was the most amazing American he, he met. Um, wow. So then I started making inquiries and, and, and diving into the archives in, in College Park, Maryland, and trying to find people who'd served with Nichols. And that took me uh, the better part of three years to figure out exactly who Nichols was. And finally, I got his military service record, um, which uh, presented a whole new kettle of, uh, of information that I didn't anticipate. Um, so yeah. I did not know anything other about anything about Donald Nichols other than that he was interesting when I started. And then with the recording, wow. I kept going down. Every time I would walk into a room and look around, I'd see something amazing and shocking. And that would happen month after month after month as I did the investigation for the book, all the it, way it, to the end of the story. Um, it's an amazing was, story. Uh, in the end, it's a Hollywood story in a way. 
not a happy story. It, it is story, with, the, with, with the ending that may be too dark for Hollywood. What happened yeah, to Nichols in the end is that the Air Force came for him, took him away in a yeah. straitjacket, and then fried his brain with electroshock secretly in a U.S. Air Force base on the Florida Panhandle. And yeah. no one in the Air Force intelligence knew this story um, uh, except for those who did it to Nichols. Unbelievable. You know, and you do such a good – so I, 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 you, it's a wonderfully told book. I, just, I recommend it. If, you, if our listeners are into this sort of thing, it, it sheds a lot of light on you, – you, you mentioned it quickly, but it does shed a lot of light on the nature of – because I knew already the North Koreans had a fascination or a kind of, a kind of enduring hatred of us, you know, a kind of societal-wide fixation with us. And I never quite got why, but the book went – did a lot to explain why there was a lot of stuff I just didn't, I myself didn't know about all that happened at that time. But what I loved about this, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit is that you, the intersection of history and just human, because Nichols is such a human person and it's just his own foibles and odd personalities intersecting with the giant waves of history created this narrative, his very small personal life intersecting with the big yeah. story of history. You can't, extricate one from the other if you know what i mean yeah nichols was was um you know very uh untrained uh that's like the understatement of the year he he was a seventh grade dropout uh he rarely read a book um and the only really formal education he had was six weeks of spy school in tokyo before they dropped him off on the korean peninsula um but he was he was sort of cunning, um, tireless, wildly brave, and very bossy and pushy. And so he, yeah. he, 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 fell in, he fell into the Korean Peninsula when no one else wanted to go there. One of the great stories about uh, Korea in the 1940 was that no military person worth his salt wanted to serve there. If you were in Japan, you had three things to fear, the story went. Gonorrhea, diarrhea, and being sent to Korea. But Nichols <laughs> loved it there because no yeah. one was telling him what to do, and he, he yeah. could create his own fiefdom of intelligence. He created his own secret base, his own secret army, and he had his own rules to run it. He said that the Air Force gave him a legal license to murder, and he <laughs> exercised it. He, he liked that license. Oh, my God. Let me ask you something. This was something interesting. That uh, Do you know Eric Larson? I know his books. Right. So he's an interesting guy. And when we were talking about um, In the Garden of the Beast, which was his book about um, pre-World right, War II. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating book. And so we were talking about, uh, you know, he, like you, is writes fact-based narrative. So he's not trying to elaborate. He wants everything. And just like yours, it's journalistic in that way. He came from journalism background as well. But he said – and I want to get your take on this. He said the one thing he no longer trusts is people. He doesn't trust people telling him stuff because he feels they're always wrong. He wants everything to have been written down. He wants diaries. He wants journal entries, letters. How do you land on that? Well, I, I, I agree with that, except with one proviso. If you can, I mean, if, if uh, Korea is, is a fast-fading subject for talking to people who experienced it in terms sure. of the Korean War because – they're yeah. in their 80s and 90s. Um, but if you can get documents, if you can get letters, if you can get photographs, and then take those to people, 
get their reaction to it and then find more documents and then take the documents back to those people and go back and forth, back and forth, you can, you can both get more out of those people and you can find new documents. Um, in the, in, uh, as I worked uh, on this book, I found an aide-de-camp, a clerk typist who worked for Donald Nichols for about two and a half years, just before and during the Korean War. He was in his mid-80s when I found out his name and telephoned him, and he, he was very close to Nichols. But he had not seen documents related to the war, and so I sent him all these documents, and I read them to him, and then I talked to him every other day for about a year about wow. what the story was with Nichols, what he remembered, and how he interpreted all these things that I was throwing at him. And then he would take me, he would send me to other documents, and it got deeper and deeper and richer. And I really yeah. got a sense of, 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 of being close to Donald Nichols through his, his friend uh, as, uh, as supported by documents and letters and photographs. I see. Boy, yeah, because um, we all know memory is a sketchy thing. Uh, I know my own memory. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever gotten into an argument with, like, your wife or a friend, and, and at the end of the argument, you try to retrace how you got in the argument, and you both have different stories about it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's true. But in case of in, you know in in battles and stuff, everybody has a different memory. Um, right. But if you can if you can sort of triangulate those those different memories, rather than just have one source, have two or three, yeah. and then have some documents from that time, you can get much closer to what happened, I believe. Yeah. Well, you did a great job. Because I was interesting, as I was reading it, I realized you were working with a kind of a shadow character in a way. And I have other friends, like David, my friend David Laskin also writes books of this nature, and he's often having to work with some very thin information to put, but has to paint as broad and deep and rich a picture as possible. And I thought you did a great job of painting a very rich picture. And I knew it sometimes you were having to look, squint through the shadows of time and it wasn't easy, but I thought you really did a good job of putting me there. So well done, Blaine. I hope you're well, proud thank of you. this book. Uh, because well, I, think I, you I, be. think that, I think that it works as a book uh, better than any of my other ones because Nichols is such a strong character and because there's such an incredible ending to the story yeah. that's, that's, that's actually supported by the psychiatric notes, the people who treated Nichols. Uh, yeah. at the end of his career, um, and those notes were extensive. Yeah. Well, so does, has this informed, has working on this book informed how you will choose a subject in the future? Has it triggered something oh, in yeah. you that you... Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Like, what, what I'm trying to do is find a, a story um, that's not been told that has, a, right. has as many uh, voices and, uh, you know, real-time written records around it as possible, uh, plus strong characters, uh, plus, uh, you know, real drama, um, and, and throw those all together. W once you get those elements, it, it really doesn't matter what the story is because you can tell it. Um, you're, you you right. may not get the president to tweet about it when it comes out, um, <laughs> but uh, still, it will it will hold up as 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 a, as a, as a good narrative uh, uh, piece of nonfiction. Yeah, character. You know, it's a funny thing in in the world of fiction. Of course, character is all. 
It really is. Character creates, with a few exceptions, but in general, almost every novelist I know, and when I wrote fiction, character is what drives the story. The story is about the character. The character, the story, is really just the shape that the character gives it, and it's true in nonfiction too. It never stops. Does it? it is. It's completely true. And if you if you go away from your character, you can only go away for so long. And when you're away yeah. from your character, that action has to bear on the character's life somehow. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, but if the character is big and and you know wonderful or big and nasty, boy, you can really throw in a huge amount of context and information without bogging down the story. Yeah. Now, Blaine. Your teachers meant a lot to you as a young man when you were a journalism student. You had some good ones, and you speak very passionately about this subject. Have you ever considered teaching writing, at least writing this kind of book, or have you already taught it? Well, you know, I've done it um, intermittently, uh, but never never got paid to teach a course over the course of uh, a year. Um, in part because I was, you know, a working journalist all my life, and then I started doing these these books for a living about seven years ago, and yeah. I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, it does keep you busy, doesn't it? Well, if you ever decide to do yeah. it, I think you'd be good at it. If it should ever speak. Uh, well, that's that's good to know. I think you would be. Uh, all right. Well, listen. As I suspected, this was a fascinating conversation, but I'm not done with you just yet, Blaine. What I'd like you to do is finish this sentence for me. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Hmm. What has writing taught me? I think, it, I think it's taught me a, a reverence for the truth. Um, you know, to, to work really hard to try to find what you think is true, and then and, and, and then make judgments based on your sense of what's true, and you know, then call a spade a spade. Um, right. That's that's that. If you work really hard to try to find out what's true, then you can make judgments, um, and you can help people understand the world. And that's what that's what writing has taught me is is, is to search for the truth. And once I think I found it, um, you know, um, uh, pivot around it and explain the world. And does that mean you also have to not have – you have to be willing to let go of your preconceived notions of what you think the truth is? Yeah, and the best way to do that is to get out of your house and go look <laughs> and see what's right. there. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. All right, so I so this book was out recently, and so um, are you traveling about the globe talking to people about it? Well, I'm traveling around the United States right now. It comes out in UK Excellent. in the spring, and I, I hope to go there and talk about it as well. And if people go to your website, can they find your tour dates there if they want to come hear you talk about it? Yeah. Um, there's a, a, an appearances tab on my website, um, and uh, it's still in progress, but uh, sure. several dates are there. Excellent. Well, people – like Blaine said, get out of your house. If you want an interesting conversation, I am sure you would have one if you go hear him speak. If you can't, just buy the book. Blaine, thank you so much. Congratulations. It's an excellent piece, and uh, I hope you get an opportunity to talk to lots of people about it because it's a conversation that should happen. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. 
Well, everybody, get out of the house. He's right. It's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. And actually, interestingly, next week we're going to have a, a conversation not totally dissimilar. I'm going to have Josh Dean on talking about World War II spies and uh, submarines. Oh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Until then, go do something you love. <laughs>